I don't like the tow rope typically. I think you've all seen tow ropes. It's the rope that tows you up to the top of the hill, and usually they're on the small hills, the bunny hill. And they build the tow rope because, well, there's not enough room. The hill's so small, there's not enough room for, you know, a real chairlift. So they build a little tow rope, and you sort of skate over there on your skis, and you grab onto the rope and pulls you to the top of the hill. And it's usually just the hill, a little hill. That's why there's a tow rope. I mean, sometimes there's a tow rope up to a cool part of the mountain, like, you know, the terrain park or something. You know, so the tow rope isn't always just for the novice skier. But you know where tow ropes don't usually go? Into volcanoes or off of cliffs. No one builds that tow rope, do they? They'll build a tow rope to the top of the bunny hill, maybe to the terrain park. But no one builds a tow rope that leads you up into the the volcano, into the lava. Because that's moronic, right? And, And who would grab a hold of that tow rope? And if you grabbed a hold of that tow rope, wouldn't you let go of the tow rope before you fell into the volcano? Well, I think most of us like to think that we would let go of the tow rope or we wouldn't even grab the volcano tow rope to begin with. We like to think that, don't we? When I was a kid growing up in the Great Lakes, when the lake would calm down, get smooth, we'd go out there and we'd water ski. Well, one summer, I was driving the boat and my uncle decided it was a good day to teach my younger cousin to water ski. So he jumped into the lake and he pulled her in. She was, I don't know, she was six or seven. She wasn't old. I was about 15 or so. Because, you know, that's how it was back in the Stone Ages on the Great Lakes. If, you know, you could drive a boat. I started driving a boat at like 12. Nobody was paying attention. Anyways, I'm at the the wheel of the boat and my uncle's in the water and my cousin's back there, my little cousin, trying to learn to water ski. And... My uncle's in the water helping keep her ski straight, and then he yells, hit it, so I do. I slam down the accelerator of the boat. The boat starts to accelerate, and my little cousin looks like she's going to get up, and oh, no, she doesn't. She fell into the water, except something funny happened. She didn't let go of the rope. And letting go of the rope is, well, that's what most people do when they fail to get up on water skis. They let go of the rope. They fall off their skis into the water, and then they let go of the rope. Well, she didn't. And as the boat speeded up, she just kind of got dragged under. And I don't know if it was a, you know, instinctive fear reaction or what it was, but she just gripped onto the ski rope like her life depended on it. Of course, you know, she was getting dragged under the water. And then my uncle's screaming at me and everyone else in the boat is screaming at me. And so I eased up on the accelerator and stopped the boat. And then she let go after the boat slowed down. Well, that was weird. And of course, it was just fear, instincts. She was unaware of it. She just sort of tensed up and her hands tensed up and she just held on to the rope. Now, eventually, I'm sure the speed of the boat and the drag of the waters, she would have let go eventually. I mean, she would have had to have. I don't think she would have been strong enough to hold on. As if the boat would have just kept accelerating, it would have become too much for her little hands. Maybe. I don't know. You know, there are stories when people get electrocuted against an electric fence that's designed to hold in animals, for example. When people touch the electric fence, their, their muscles just contract and grip 
super tight because of the electric shock pulsating through their bodies. And they can't let go. They want to let go, but they, but they can't. You know, maybe that would have happened to her. Maybe she would have just clenched up as if she was being shocked electrically. And had I not decelerated, she would have just, because of her fear, just held on so tightly and gone deeper and deeper and deeper and, you know, into the water and, you know, disaster. Maybe that would have, who knows? I don't know. But still, how strange that she, to her peril, held on tighter to the rope. And that grip, that fear was what was, well, that, that's what was endangering her. How very strange, and yet how typical, how common these type of experiences are, and not just in the world of sport or activity or physical activity. Anyone who's ever been inside a casino can see something as seemingly insane as holding onto the tow rope after you've fallen off your water skis and are being dragged behind the boat underwater or are being electrocuted by the electrical fence where you've just lost control of your grip, where your grip becomes so tight, driven by fear or electric shock, that you've lost control of it. And it, it's like this vice grip attachment to something that's dragging you somewhere where you don't want to go. But you're oblivious in a state of terror. And this happens not just when you're water skiing or when you're you know, cruising the range and bumping up against electric fences. I mean, just walk through a casino, and within five minutes, you see people sitting on chairs next to the slot machines with big gulp-sized containers full of coins, and these people are inserting the coins into the machine, pulling the arm, inserting the coin into the machine, pulling the arm over and over and over and over and over and over until their big gulp plastic container is empty, and then they get up and go get another big gulp container full of coins. Well, what is going on inside their heads? And I'm sort of picking on the people at the slot machines, but we're all susceptible to it. And if we're not easily tricked by the slot machine, then it's other things, other attitudes or habits or psychological proclivities that render us just as unable to let go, to stop, to turn course as my younger cousin was as she was being dragged behind the boat. What forces take us over and possess us? so that we can't do the rational thing, the smart thing, to where we can't let go of the tow rope before we fall into the volcano, where we can't just get up and walk out of the casino. And what's going on, of course, is pretty simple. You're on autopilot. You're on autopilot. The machine, the code, the black box, your habits, your conditioning, however you want to think about it, it's taken over. A- And then it's told you that you can't take control back. We've all had the experience of walking down the street or driving the car down the street and suddenly we're just going somewhere and we're not aware of where we're going and then we just end up there. Well, it's as if that process has said to you, you can never be aware of where you're going. You've had that experience, I presume. You're driving down the road. You're going. And then suddenly you wake up and you realize you don't know where you're going. Or you're headed to somewhere that you go to routinely, like the office or the store or someplace, but that's not where you intended to go on this particular trip. It's amazing how much of our life is conducted that way. Because driving a car, for example, that's not, I mean, it's not the most complicated thing in the world, but it's certainly not simple. You know, and you can drive a car along a route that you're familiar with 
without even being aware that you're doing it, and you can do it safely. Autopilot. There's this thing, something inside you that's driving the car while you're, you know, thinking about who knows what. Walking down the road is the same sort of thing, isn't it? You can walk blocks and blocks and blocks and not even be aware of all the things around you, the sidewalk, the, the angles, the, the roots that might trip you, the, the potholes, you, and you know, the direction, your, your ultimate destination. You're just sort of walking along, step after step after the balance you need to re- keep from falling over. All that stuff is just happening in the background, and your mind can be thinking about, again, who knows what. The game coming up, or the party you're going to attend, or why your child is a certain way, or you know, all the thoughts that we get lost in. It's amazing the amount of life that we conduct on autopilot. They interviewed the musician Billy Joel once. Billy Joel, for you younger listeners, is a piano player, singer. He has a large catalog of music, a big library. And for many years, he didn't write any new music. He just toured. And each night on stage would play the same set of songs. And they asked him if he ever forgot the songs while he was playing. He said not only did he never forget the songs, he didn't even think about the songs while he was playing them. He was thinking about other things. He'd be up there singing this, you know, really emotional ballad about something, you know, lost romance or something really heavy like that. And he he had done it so many times that he could be thinking about, you know, dinner plans next week with friends in Indianapolis or, you know, errands that he forgot. That's what he would be thinking about while he's playing these songs. And of course, much of our life is conducted this way. And, and we need autopilot. I mean, you can't be thinking about every step you take down the sidewalk or every you know, left-hand turn you take in your car on the way to the grocery store. You kind of need to just be able to do some of those things. And that's all well and fine, as long as you're aware of it, as long as it never takes you over. Being able to drive on autopilot to the store without thinking about every little turn, and that's great. Being able to perform a song like Billy Joel and never think about it, that, that's awesome. That's a good skill. But if it ever gets to the point where every time you get in the car, the only place you can ever go to is the store, or every time you sit down at the piano, the only song you can sing is some maudlin ballad about lost love, Well, then maybe you're at a point where autopilot's taken over you. Maybe you've become the slave to the machine. Maybe the black box owns you. And once the black box owns you, then you're only going to do what the black box knows how to do. I have some friends who I've known my entire life. I know their whole family. Anytime I get together with any of them, any member of this family, there is always at least one mention of their parents' divorce, which happened many decades ago. I cannot think of a single time that I've seen any of the members of this family where it has been mentioned at least once. Don't get me wrong. It was traumatic for them. It was a horrible experience. And, you know, I understand if people want to talk about it from time to time, I get it. I'm not Scrooge. I'm not, you know, my heart is not made of stone. But over the years, I've started to think that they're sort of on an infinite loop. The code of the autopilot, 
the black box. It's just looping over and over and over like a scratch record. And I don't think they're even aware of it. It's just become part of their life. This trauma, this horrible thing that they keep reliving over and over and over again. And they want to dissect it and talk about it and feel it yet again. Well, that's kind of like the car saying to you when you get inside that we'll be going to the store today. And then tomorrow we'll be going to the store. And next week, and every time you use me, the car, I'll be telling you where we'll be going and we're going to be going to the store. And don't worry, you don't have to think about it. You know the route so well. No one has to think about it. We're just going to get there. It's going to be safe. You're going to make all the turns properly and you're going to obey the traffic laws. And no one's going to get in an accident on the way to the store, but that's the only place we're ever going to go. You know, we're going to sit at the blackjack table and we're going to keep gambling. We're going to keep trying to win back our losses, even though the odds are against us. And that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to try to get up on the water skis, but if we fail, we're going to hold onto the rope so tightly, we're going to never let go. Your heart will keep beating. You're going to avoid the roots on the sidewalk. But me, autopilot, the black box, the code, I'm in charge, not you, sentient human being. I mean, that's kind of what, what they're saying each and every time any of us get together. And we revisit the great trauma of their youth. There's a concept in statistics. I know this is an abrupt segue, but indulge me. There's a concept in statistics called autocorrelation. What autocorrelation basically means is, is that yesterday's actions or the state in the period previous, because autocorrelation applies to statistics measured over time, through time, like the weather or stock prices, or or the height of your child. If you measure things through time, today's temperature versus yesterday's temperature versus the temperature last week, or the stock price of General Motors today compared to the stock price of General Motors yesterday, you know, if if you take these type of measurements through time, day after day after day, the measurement of yesterday seems to correlate with the measurement of today. That makes sense, right? I mean, if it's summer, you know, the temperature for yesterday is probably going to help you infer to a certain extent what the temperature today is going to be. You know, in the middle of summer, it's not like it's minus 40 one day and then 90 degrees above zero. The next, th- that doesn't happen. So series of statistics over time are often correlated. And this whole idea is autocorrelation. Measurements through time are correlated with themselves. Today's measurement predicts tomorrow's. Well, if you're not aware of the times when you're running on autopilot, when the black box of your life is just running your life, you're going to have the most autocorrelated life ever. Each day is going to be exactly like the day before, and the day before, and the day before. And don't get me wrong, we need a little autocorrelation in our lives, or else our lives are chaotic. But if, if you're to the point where the direction of your life has taken control of you, the habits and the routines have said to you, there is no alternative ever, no matter what you intend, then maybe the machine has taken over you. And there's no progress when that happens. Because progress means you break out of the loop. You break out of the infinite loop, the scratch record. Progress means that next time you get in your car, you don't just go to the store. 
Progress means next time you lose the $100 you said would be the limit for your losses at the blackjack table, you get up from the blackjack table and you leave. Progress is much more like a phase transition. In physics, states of matter change at certain thresholds. Water, for example, at 99 degrees Celsius looks like water. You know, the difference between water, the appearance of water at 1 degree Celsius and 99 degrees Celsius is exactly the same. It just looks like water. I mean, if you touch it, it'll feel different. At 1 degree Celsius, it'll feel quite cold. And at 99 degrees Celsius, it'll feel hot to the touch. But if you look at it, it just looks like water. You can't tell the difference. But at 0 degrees Celsius, water turns into ice. Well, then it looks very different, doesn't it? And at 100 degrees Celsius, water starts to bubble and turns into steam. These are called phase transitions. And the phase transition point is 0 degrees Celsius and 100 degrees Celsius for water. Well, if you've been running on autopilot for weeks or months or years or decades, as many people do, it might be time for a phase transition for you. Particularly if your autopilot has hijacked you and told you there can be no change, no progress, no improvement. Which is, by the way, what all autopilots say to their masters. Because autopilots want to do what they want to do. They don't want to do what you want to do. They want to do what they want to do. And that's a hard idea for people to get their arms around. How on earth can my habits, my ego, all the things that I've pounded into myself, how can those things want to do what they want to do independent of me? Well, it's hard to understand this idea, but your ego, your autopilot, the black box inside you, that's exactly what it wants to do. It wants to do what it wants to do. It wants to get mad at the same old dumb things. It wants to fail in the same old way. It wants to keep traveling down the same routes. It wants to be in charge of you. And so it's a helper at first, but you know, we need autopilot. We need autopilot to conduct life, but you just got to be aware and you can't let it hijack you. And the more complicated, the more efficient, the more skilled your autopilot gets, sometimes the harder it is to realize that it's not you and that you're the boss. That realization, that realization that you are not your own autopilot, your own ego, your own black box. Well, once you make that realization, you're 90% of the way there. Once you realize that the vast majority of thoughts that you have, the vast majority of impulses that you have, most of the voices that you're hearing in your head aren't you, but something else, the judge, the ego, the autopilot, the black box. Well, you're, you know, you're way, way down the path. Because the facts are, sadly, statistically, now that we've mentioned statistics in this podcast, the facts are, statistically, most people never get to that point in their lives, never get to the point where they're aware, where they recognize, where they realize that there's kind of two of them, or three of them, or ten of them, ten of themselves, and only one is really them. Only one is really the proactive, conscious, aware being. All the other voices, all the other impulses, well, all the other things, all those other things, they're just, you know, stray computer code, just more lines in the program. But if you can realize the difference between you and everything else inside you, that realization and that continued awareness gets you 90% of the way to freedom, 90% of the way to the point where you decide with your intention, with your choices, how things are going to be. 
And it's nice to be able to choose. And life's a lot better when you're choosing. And what happens when you start to choose for yourself, when you start to realize you're not the slave, but you're the master, then autopilot can take its rightful place. All the computer code and the tools and the routines and the habits, they can all take their rightful place as tools for you to use, as methods to get things done, not as Frankensteins with a life and power of their own to subjugate you. Sadly, the path most of us walk to this realization is through misery. We get so sick of driving to the store day in and day out. And frankly, some of the destinations of our routines are not as benign as the store. And the misery that ensues when we become slaves to our tools, well, sometimes that becomes so heavy it forces this sort of realization. The realization that maybe you're separate from everything going on inside your head. Maybe you can step back, become aware. Maybe you can step back and watch all these other processes that seem to have a life of their own. Maybe you can even form an intention and use the various autopilot tools in your life the way you want to. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Maybe you can rise above what you thought was yourself. And as that thought enters your mind, well, the water's starting to boil, isn't it? A phase transition is happening. And then everything about you, well, it all begins to look different. As different as steam is compared to liquid water. Can that be so? Is there anything to this or is this just more jabbering by some guy in his office? We've talked a lot about the children of Israel lately. Their exodus out of Egypt, their faith in following this Pied Piper, this magic man Moses, into the desert. We've talked about their strategically poor position of being trapped up against the Red Sea as the army of the Egyptians was descending upon them to kill them. And then, as described in the movies like Prince of Egypt and Ten Commandments, Moses kind of tiptoes into the Red Sea and slams his staff into the water, and the waters of the Red Sea separate divide. And then there's this path, this road through the Red Sea with walls of water held up magically somehow. That's the way it's portrayed in these movies anyways. But however you think about it, the Red Sea divides and the children of Israel cross the sea out of their indefensible, strategically poor position away from the descending armies of the Egyptians. I don't think the authors of Exodus were talking about the escape from ego Redemption from one's own autopilot. I don't think the authors of Exodus meant to symbolically describe fear as as being like an army of angry Egyptians on their chariots with their spears ready to kill you. I don't know if they wrote the story that way intentionally or not, but boy, that's what the realization that you're not your autopilot feels like. That's what realizing all the voices in your head aren't your voices feels like. It feels like somebody has miraculously divided this sea against which you're trapped and then said to you, come on, let's, let's just walk through on dry ground. And then all the fear that you have, all the voices and clamorings in your head telling you it can't be so. As they enter that sea, they're going to get dashed to pieces just like the Egyptian army was. Because that's what happened to the Egyptian army, the fear. As the children of Israel passed on dry ground, they went into the the road or the pathway or whatever it was going through the Red Sea. And as they went in, they were dashed 
by the water. There was no phase transition for the Egyptian army. Again, I don't know if the authors of Exodus intentionally wrote it this way or not, but boy, on a metaphorical level, doesn't the story of the Exodus seem to be describing just this process? The process of leaving one state and heading into another, a better state, a freer state, a state where the children of Israel could begin to decide for themselves, a state where they were truly free, a state where they weren't slaves to the Egyptians, but also not slaves to themselves, free from bondage. Is that what they were writing about? I don't know, but the story's told in such a way where it sure is memorable. The story's told in such a way that it acts like a touchstone for us as we go through our own travels from our own states of bondage to our own wide open plains of freedom. This isn't the only story of a journey in the Bible, in the Holy Scriptures. Exodus isn't the only story of a phase transition. And the process of phase transitions is not only told in journey stories like the story of Exodus. They're told in all sorts of stories and parables and scriptures and lessons and all sorts of holy books. And all of the lessons seem to be saying the same thing. You are not the tools you create. Your ego, your autopilot, it works for you, not vice versa. And the first step to completely changing the order of things, the hierarchy, in your life is awareness, recognition, true recognition that you're in charge. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com until next time.